You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. If you remain standing this morning, turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 as we continue to walk through this book. While you're finding your place, uh, Ryan McGurt, where are you, brother? There you are. Step up here. He's not expecting this, as you can tell by the uh, look on his face. But he, he also knows how I operate, so he shouldn't be surprised. Uh, this man and his wife and their family just led us through eight weeks of, of basketball. I know you're going to get me. I know. Uh, it, the last thing that a, that a servant of God wants to do is be recognized. But when I see tremendous work being done by, by somebody in our church, I think we need to not only acknowledge it, we need to celebrate it with him. I have seen a gym full of, of families and kids being ministered to, to him and to the team he put together, his coaches. Uh, but not only that, what I saw out in that gym as my son got to play is I saw camaraderie on the court that quite frankly, folks, is missing in a whole lot of sports these days kids supporting each other, maybe kids that didn't have the greatest basketball skills in the world like I was when I was growing up, out on his court and the way he leads that league over there is those kids support one another. And everybody has an opportunity to shoot the ball and to play and to learn and to be supported. I want you to know that that flows out of a leader's heart, a servant leader's heart, and that's the heart that Ryan McGirt has. And I want you to give him a round of applause this morning. How are you? How are you? That's right. <laughs> You're just going to have to put up with me in Revelation 12, unfortunately. So let's pick it up in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it, devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Father, we bow in this moment. We give you praise and honor and glory for all that you are doing in this fellowship. Father, the prophet was asked many, many years ago as he was standing in the valley of the dry bones, you asked him a question and you asked the prophet, can these dry bones live? And Father, by all outside perspective, there is no way that that those dead bones, those dead bodies could live. The prophet said, Lord, you know. And Father, in the valley of dry bones where there was nothing but death, you brought life. And Father, we believe that that pointed not only to something that was going to happen in the future through Jesus Christ, the righteous, and his resurrection, that, that dead bones were going to live, but also it speaks to us as we follow you in this life of brokenness and pain and wars and hatred. That, Father, there are days when we just simply feel dead. Father, it may be by our own choices. 
It might be by what the world is throwing at us. It may be something completely outside of our control. But Lord, that question rings in our ears. Shall dry bones live? And Father, the answer to that question under your sovereign power is yes. That where death is, life continues. So we give you praise and honor for that this morning. We worship you. Thank you for your word. God has sent it this morning, we ask. We ask all this in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So we have come to this place in the text where things get really, really odd. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute. We've already had several verses and several chapters that were very odd. Well, the thing about chapter 12 is, is that we, we kind of break out of the pattern that we've been in where, you know, the judgments are revealed and God pours those judgments out and, and we see what happens on earth and then we see what happens in heaven. What happens in chapter 12, though, is, is rather unique. And what God does here for John is he kind of pulls the veil back for just a moment and allows John to see with his own eyes what's really been happening within the world, well, ever since the fall. So if we go back to Genesis 3, you don't have to turn back there. In Genesis 3, what we have there is Adam and Eve have been given a single commandment. And that commandment is don't eat of this tree. Well, eventually a serpent, which we know to be Satan, comes into the garden and begins to tell Eve, you know, did God really say you couldn't eat of that? I mean, what God is doing when he tells you that, he's trying to keep something from you that you deserve. So Satan appeals to Adam and Eve's desire to be in the control of their own life, to not have to submit to God, the creator of all things. So from Genesis 3, we have Adam and Eve who, who choose to disobey God, and, and then, of course, God comes and, and looks for Adam and Eve, and, of course, they've ran and hide, hiding in the bushes, and God calls them out, and he, he, he rains down judgment upon Adam and Eve, and he basically gives out the judgment to each one of them for their disobedience, both Adam and Eve. And then he looks at the serpent, and he says something very interesting to Satan in that moment. He says that there will be a seed from the woman, a seed, a child, an offspring. And Satan, you will bruise his heel. You will, you will inflict some pain and damage on him. But eventually, this descendant from Adam and Eve will crush your head. Now, from that point all the way through into where we live today, we've had nothing but wars, cancer, sickness, death, separation. We've had incredibly heinous acts done all down through history. And we look at all of that, the, 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 the totality of all of that evil, and we, we have to come to some conclusions about what is going on in the world. In fact, it's from Genesis chapter 3, all the way to Revelation chapters 19 and 20, which we'll get to in a few weeks, you have nothing but brokenness, sin, and destruction, period. So it's almost like Genesis 3, before that, in the garden, everything was perfect. After Revelation 19 and 20, everything is perfect. Everything in between, including the life in which you live, is broken. We have addictions. We have people sticking needles in their arms to try to escape the world. We have people drinking alcohol or, or streaming 10 or 15 hours of Netflix just to escape the world because of the brokenness that we see, not only out there, but in our very homes. And all of this is, is confronting us with the reality that evil is real, very much real. This morning, what Revelation 12 is going to do, what God does for us and having John write this down, is 
is he's going to pull the veil back and let us see what's been going on in this war This had been happening from Genesis 3 in the fall up to when Jesus reigns and rules upon this earth with an iron scepter. Everything in between is brokenness. And so what Paul is, or what John is going to do is just kind of pull the veil back and let us see what is actually happening. I've told you before that when you put your faith in Christ, when you you surrender your life to him and, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, over time, and of course at that very moment you get the Holy Spirit God living in you, but what happens is, is you begin to see the world differently. It's not that you know all of the doctrine and the theology and everything that the Bible has to say, because the Bible says we are like infants in Christ, but nonetheless, there is this moment where our eyes open and we begin to see the world differently. We begin to see not only the love and the grace and the mercy that, that God had for us to forgive us in that moment, But we begin to see God at work around us, in our families, in our homes, in our jobs. We begin to see this sovereign God and his power. We begin to see the creation differently. When we look at a flower, when we look at a sunset, when we look at the stars at night, we begin to think about this God who saved us. And it begins to open up for us an understanding that we didn't have before. The reason that is is because before you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you were spiritually dead, physically alive, spiritually dead. So what happens in that moment is is Jesus gives you brand new life. That's why the Bible describes it as the new birth. You get a brand new life, a do-over. But I would also say to you that not only knowing God helps us to understand his purpose and his will for our life, but let me me put this in front of you this morning, what we're going to be confronted with in Revelation 12, is also understanding that Satan is a real entity, a real being, also opens up your perspective on what's going on in the world. Now, when I use the word Satan or when I use the word devil, it may bring up images in your mind about, oh, he's talking about the guy who's shoveling coal in a furnace in hell, right? Or the majority of our world, when we think about evil, what they think about is, well, the problems in society, right? So we have maybe a broken education system or a, or a broken income system where some people are making way more money than they should and others aren't making anything, and that's the real problem. That evil is the result of societal problems, that, that evil is the result of, of uh, the problems we have, whether they be drug problems or mental health problems or health care problems or education problems, that a person who is suffering or makes bad choices is the result of something going on in society. That's one viewpoint. The Bible presents something totally different. Now, all of those things I just mentioned, yes, they contribute to the choices we make, but make no mistake about it. The Bible believes, Jesus believed, Paul believed, John believed, Peter believed that there is a being, a literal being, who walks upon this earth, and his name is Satan. He is not a cartoon character. And he is also not to be taken lightly. So Revelation 12, through the hand of John, we're going to get this picture of this this battle, this warfare that's been going on, well, ever since the fall. And we're going to find out that at the fountainhead of all evil, at the fountainhead of all sin and brokenness, is none other than this literal being named Satan. And that this literal being named Satan has been roaming the earth. The Bible says that he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. So let's pick it up in verse 1, Revelation 12. We're going to see some really strange imagery here, so we're going to have to walk through some of this. Verse 1, 
And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. As we have seen multiple times already in the book of Revelation, John utilizes symbolism to describe what it is he's seeing. Because you can imagine that John is overwhelmed with everything he's seen up to this far. And look, he's not seen everything yet. It's going to get even more profound and difficult. So John is going to write, and what, the way he writes often connects back to the Old Testament. Because remember, John, a Jewish, a Jewish man first, then a follower of Jesus, he had been taught, he had learned, he had memorized much of the Old Testament. So when he begins to try to describe to the world what he's seeing, he often utilizes imagery from the Old Testament to describe what he's seeing. So what he sees in this sign is a woman. And it says that she was clothed with the sun, bright light. She is, has a moon under the feet, and there's stars on a crown on her head. What in the world is he, is he talking about? It seems very odd and very strange. There's going to be three characters in Revelation 12 that we're going to need to identify. This is the first one. The imagery that John uses, where did he pull that imagery from? You don't have to turn back there, but there's a story in Genesis chapter 37. It's the story of Joseph. You remember Joseph and his brothers, right? There's all this tension among the sons of Jacob, and, and these sons have tension because they don't like the favorite son, Joseph. It was appearing in their minds that Joseph was the favorite of, of their father, and they didn't like that. Well, tension begins to build, and one day Joseph is out in the field with them, and Joseph says, hey guys, let me tell you about a dream I had. And he tells them this dream, and this dream has this idea of, of a moon and a sun and stars and we understand that the, the sun represents Jacob and the, and the moon represents Rachel and the, the 12 stars represent the, the 12 sons, which will be the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, but, but the problem with the story is, is that Joseph presents it as though he is the premier son of all, all the sons. As you know that story, eventually they decide that he has to die. Well, that same imagery that, that we see in Genesis 37, John uses it to describe this woman. So who is this woman? What does she represent? Well, the Catholic Church would say that this represents Mary, and you're going to see why, because this woman is pregnant. I don't think it's Mary. What I think, and based on the imagery that we see here, I think this woman represents the nation of Israel. Now, let's read on, and I'll show you why I believe that. Verse 2, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So this woman is right at the moment of giving birth. So this woman that I believe represents Israel, the people of God, is getting ready to give birth to a male child, a son. And now we get to see the second character in the story, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his heads and seven diadems. Now at this point you may be thinking, wait a minute. This sounds like something I read in a comic book or read in a story or watched on TV. John is describing what he's seeing. He sees this great dragon. So who is the great dragon? The great dragon is none other than Satan himself. The way that John is depicting him here shows that he has power. Notice the kings. Notice the crowns that he wears. Notice the, the multiple heads. Says to us about Satan's kingdom and the influence and the power that he has on this planet that God has given him. We know that when Paul wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus in chapter 6, he warns all of us as followers of Jesus to put on armor, in other words, to prepare for battle. But in that statement where Paul writes to that church in Ephesians 6, he says that there are rulers in high places, darkness, power. So there, there are people with authority 
that behind that authority is none other than this red dragon who is guiding these kings and rulers to do, well, quite frankly, heinous acts. So the first woman, or the first character is this woman, and I believe that to be none other than Israel. The second character is this great red dragon. Now notice what this red dragon is doing. This red dragon is waiting for the birth of this child. This red, it almost has this picture of, a, of an animal, like a lion that's creeping around, watching and waiting for this child to be born because this red dragon wants to destroy this child at birth. This woman is right at the threshold of giving birth. She is already having the pains of child, of birthing the child and the devil, the dragon is waiting. Verse four, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. What is John talking about? Let me give you a little background as to what John is referring to, that, that the Jewish people of his day understood this. Where did Satan come from? Who, who is this being? If he's a literal being, then who is he? Well, if you go back to Isaiah 14, you don't have to turn back there. You can read about a story where it talks about a great being fallen from heaven. Now, the Bible tells us that Satan originally was a created angel of God. That in eternity past, way before the cosmos, the planets, wherever created, you had the Godhead Trinity, you had God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and you had this myriad of angels that God had created. And among those angels was one that we know to be Satan. Now, at some point in eternity past, Satan decides that he's going to overthrow God. Now, get this. Satan is a created being by God. He is not on the same level as God himself. The creator is over the creation. So this created being decides in his mind that, you know what, somebody needs to do something about God. And Satan decides that he wants to be God. So what does he do? He gets together some angels. They all agree with him that something needs to be done. And get this, they stage a coup in heaven against the creator. Now, there's a lot of foolish things that I read in the Bible, but that's got to be one of the top foolish things. And of course, God throws Satan out and all of those who followed him. Right here it says his tail swept down a third of the stars. This is John looking back to that moment when Satan is cast down. And when he's cast down, he takes a whole host of angels with him, which we know today to be demons. Yes, demons are real. Yes, Satan is real. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 12, you're going to see that. So here we have Satan cast down to earth. Now, by, obviously, by that point, we have the creation. Now, here's what happens next. I don't think there's a lot of time that transpires between when Satan is cast to earth, when he gets here, he looks across to creation, and he says, how can I harm God? How can I bring some destruction upon God's kingdom? He looks across to creation, and you know what he sees? He sees God's prized creation. Who was that? Adam and Eve. I don't think there was a lot of time that transpired from the moment Satan was thrown down to the earth and he went straight into the garden to tempt Adam and Eve. So let's read on. It said, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child. Now we get to the third character. First character, this woman clothed with the sun, standing upon the moon with the 12 stars represents Israel. Israel, it was predicted all through the prophets, minor and major prophets, that out of Israel there would come a Messiah, a promised one, the chosen one, the very son of God. Isaiah predicted it. Jeremiah predicted it. Malachi predicted it. 
Not only predicted it, but predicted it with great detail, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So we know that out of the nation of Israel, that Jesus Christ the Messiah is going to be born, that Jesus Christ would be a Jewish Messiah. Not only that, but the prophets tell us that out of Israel, it would be specifically from the line of David, specifically from the tribe of Judah. That was all predicted before Jesus was ever born. If you remember back before Christmas, we walked through that strange text of the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. And I went to great lengths to show you how important that it was that Jesus was born in the line of Abraham and a line of, the line of David, the tribe of Judah. Well, all down through those ages, there was the expectation that Israel was going to birth a male son who would be the promised one. Here we have this imagery, this picture of Christmas. You haven't thought about the Christmas story being in Revelation 12. That's exactly what's happening here. And God pulls the veil back to show us what was actually happening. So notice this. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness. So in this place, this Christmas moment that we all enjoy, right? We have that beautiful manger scene. We've got the shepherds, and of course your manger scenes depict the wise men being there, but that's not actually historically accurate. That's a sermon for Christmas, not now. But nonetheless, we have this nostalgia about Christmas, the beauty of it, the peace of it, the, the idea of, of the angels singing and the shepherds celebrating. Well, here in Revelation 12, God pulls the veil back and says, let me show you what was really going on. Because what was really going on in that moment is what this red dragon has been doing for generations. He was waiting for this child to be born so that he could have the opportunity to destroy it. Now, why would he do that? You go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and you see where God says to the serpent, looks him eye to eye, looks Satan eye to eye, and he says to Satan, Satan, there's going to be a child born from Adam and Eve that child is going to crush your head. He's going to bring an end to you. Now, obviously, in that moment, Satan is going to want to know, who is this child? Is there some way that I can thwart the plan of God? Is there some way that I could prevent this from happening? Satan, in his arrogance, in his ego, just like when he got cast out of heaven, well, Satan begins to look and search and try to figure out, who is going to be this seed of the woman? One thing you need to know about Satan, and you need to hear me on this clearly, those who even within the church think that, that God and Satan are like two great gods and they're at war with one another. And sometimes Satan is overwhelming God where God is sitting around rubbing his hands like, what are we going to do now? And then there's times where God kind of gets the best of Satan and, and is kind of overthrowing Satan and God's in charge. And it's like this thing that goes back and forth. Folks, let me just tell you what that is. That's heresy of the tallest order. <laughs> Satan is a created being. He is under the thumb of God. He always has been. And there's going to be a day where Satan is going to be held account for everything that he's done. But let me take you back. I want to walk you through the Old Testament. We don't have to turn back there. But I want to show you how Satan has been working all of this time. Because Satan is not omniscient, which means he's not like God. He doesn't know everything. But he's very shrewd. And he studies the situation. He tries to figure out what's going to happen next. So God says there's going to be a seed from a woman that's going to crush your head. And you know what Satan thinks? Well, right after that, Adam and Eve 
I have a couple of sons, Cain and Abel. You remember them? And all of a sudden, in Genesis chapter 4, this story, well, it kind of goes off the rails almost immediately after the fall. And what happens? Well, these two boys, they grow up, and Abel is worshiping God. Cain is a little bit indifferent. Cain begins to get angry and get jealous of his brother Abel to the point where Cain decides that he's going to kill Abel. And in that story in Genesis 4, there's a really interesting phrase there. God says to Cain, hey, Cain, do you not know that sin is crouching outside your door? Almost like there's a wild animal, Cain, right outside your door, and it seeks to devour you. It seeks to have you. So what say you, Cain? Are you, are you going to give in to this? We know the story. Cain eventually does kill Abel. His blood calls out to God from the ground. But if we pull the veil back for just a moment, what was actually going on there? Could that be a, was that Satan working in that moment to say, oh, wait a minute, Abel, Abel is worshiping God. Cain is a little indifferent. Maybe Abel is the promised son. Maybe I need to do something. And guess what he did? He led Cain to take the life of his brother in cold blood. But that's not the only place we see Satan doing this kind of work. If you, if you fast forward a little bit, you get into Exodus 1. The nation of Israel is now in Egypt. And for a while while they were in Egypt, remember why they went there. They went there to escape famine. And only 70 people went to Egypt originally. But then a new Pharaoh gets in charge. And by this time, there are millions of Jewish people within Egypt enslaved. And in Exodus 1, we find out that there's an evil Pharaoh who rises to power. He's so evil that he is killing the Jewish people. He is destroying them. He has enslaved them. Later on in the text, we find out that this Pharaoh is so evil that he is killing male children, Israelite children. He's killing them under the age of two, throwing them in the Nile River and watching the crocodiles devour them. Why do you think that happened? Is it, do, we just have, do we just have Pharaoh here who's just a bad guy who just doesn't like the Israelites and is going to show them who's in charge? Or is it Satan who is motivating this king to kill these children, these males, two years under, hoping, hoping that he can take out the promised one who's going to crush his head? You move a little further. You get into 1 Samuel chapter 18. Here we have the story of David and Saul. Saul, who's the king of Israel. David, who is a young teenage boy who's just been anointed as king. David begins to play music for Saul in his courtroom. Right, right before this, David had just killed Goliath, and everybody was talking about, man, David was like the most popular guy ever. Saul's ego, his pride was just eating him up. And one day, one day Saul decides he's going to kill David. Now David, being the leader, the being the, the great, great, great whatever of Jesus Christ, could it have been that in that moment, either Satan thought that David might be that son, or it could be that one of his kids are going to be that son that crushes my head. So in that moment, he leads Saul. And in that very text, we read that Saul was tormented by an evil spirit and decides that David must be killed. You move forward a little more. I can, look, I could give you hundreds of examples like this. I'm only going to give you a few. If you move forward a little bit further into the Old Testament, we get to 2 Kings chapter 11. And we have a woman by the name of Athaliah. This woman was evil to the core, and she became the queen. She became the one who took the throne. And she was so evil that she decided that she was going to kill all the descendants of Judah. 
She didn't want any threats to her power. She didn't want any threats to her throne. So she is going to kill the royal line. She's going to kill all of the offspring of Judah who would, who would try to take her throne. And you know what she does? She kills them all. And if it were not for one relative and a nursemaid who take this little boy named Josiah, take Josiah and hide him, then Athaliah would have killed the entire line of Judah. And we know that Jesus comes from the line of Judah. How could that possibly be? Well, Satan in the background working to try to stop what God had said. Go to the book of Esther. We have a guy by the name of Haman. Haman's going to kill all the Jews, all of them. Esther, and the text says, for such a time as this, steps forward and becomes the one who protects the entire nation from destruction. You go to Matthew, the birth of Jesus. What do you have there? You have the wise men who go to King Herod. King Herod learns that there's a king who's been born. What does King Herod do? King Herod says, we're going to kill all of the children, all the boys, two and under, in Bethlehem. Do we see a trend here? Do we, do we see a, a storyline that runs from the Old Testament all the way in the New Testament? Jesus grows up. He's baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus goes out into the wilderness. Who meets him in the wilderness? Satan. What's Satan trying to do? Deter him from becoming the king. Judas chooses to betray the king of kings. Who do you think is motivating, motivating that? Peter stands in front of Jesus and says to Jesus, I am not going to let you go to the cross. I am not going to let you be crucified. And you know what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16? Listen, he says, get behind me, Satan. Could it be? that this red dragon, ever since the fall, has been working tirelessly to disrail, derail all that God was doing. Could it be that what we see here in, in Revelation 12, this dragon, and what we see with this sun, maybe what we see here is something that's been going on for years and years and years. We've just labeled it as societal problems. We've labeled it as all kinds of problems when in fact, this great red dragon that Peter described as a lion seeking whom he may devour, maybe he's been the one, the fountainhead of all the evil and destruction we've been seeing. Let's read on verse seven. A war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back but was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of their whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, what is this talking about? Is this talking about what happened back in creation, before creation when I said that Satan tried to overthrow God? A lot of theologians believe that, that this is just another description of that event. I think it's something else. When we see here that he's the accuser, if you jump down into verse uh, 10, it says that this great dragon, Satan, is the accuser of our brothers. He's been thrown down. We know, when we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, we know that since the fall, Satan has had access to God. I know it's a strange thing, but it's, it's from what I can tell from Scripture, Satan has access to even the throne room of God. And what does he do? He accuses the saints. He accuses the people of God. He's constantly accusing God's people. And so when we look at this, and we look at this 
this part of chapter uh, 12, verse 7 and following, what I think is happening here is Satan once again, during this tribulation time, during this time where God is pouring his wrath out on this planet, somewhere, we're not told when, Satan tries to again assault God, try to dethrone God. And what happens? Well, the angel Michael and the other angels fight against him, cast him back down to the earth. And now listen to what happens when they're cast back to the earth. If you jump down to verse 12, and I'm going to come back to verse 11 in just a moment. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devils come down to you in great wrath, and he knows that his time is short. So in this tribulation time where God is pouring out his wrath, when God is wrapping up all time and space, Satan is thrown back to the earth, and he has no more access to heaven. We know that in the book of Job, we see Satan before the throne of God accusing Job. We know that the Bible says that he is the great accuser. But at this point, Satan is defeated yet again. He is cast down to the earth and he knows that his time is short. Go back up to verse 11. Actually, verse 10. Let's pick it up there. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and our authority and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them night and day before our God. Verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. The Bible describes followers of Jesus as conquerors. It, it describes us, if, so if, if there's a warfare that is going on, Paul says there's a war going on, John says there's a war going on, John says there's a spiritual battle going on, and then Paul says, put on the whole armor of God, expecting us to enter into this battle and not only enter it, but to be victorious. How is a follower of Jesus supposed to be victorious over such a being as Satan? How, how in the world are we supposed to have victory when we look at such power and influence, well, God tells us right here. It is by the blood of the lamb. What is it about the blood of the lamb? The, lamb, the, the blood that Jesus shed, what is it about that that gives me victory? Well, here, here's what it does. At the moment I put my faith in Jesus at age 16, I was carrying with me, prior to that moment, I was carrying with me all kinds of guilt and shame. I was carrying with me all the wrongs that I had done. And trust me when I tell you, even though I was 16, between the ages of about 11 and 16, I was living out some bad choices in my life. My parents were praying for me, but I was prideful, I was arrogant, I thought I had it all figured out, and quite frankly, for me, it was all about the next party. And so with me, I was carrying this guilt and this shame that I could not get, out, get away from. I was, I was part of the kingdom of darkness. This, this father, Satan, this kingdom, I was part of that. The Bible says that we are born into that kingdom. The Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know the depths of it? Jeremiah 17. The Bible says that we are born broken. The world says that the reason we're broken is because of societal problems. The Bible says we are broken because we're born broken. And then we choose to disobey. We choose to do heinous things. Listen, folks, you may not be a murderer. You may not be someone who struggled with addictions. But let me tell you this. I don't know about you, but the stuff that runs through my mind on any given day is heinous and evil. I know none of us want to shake our head to that, but let's all be honest for a moment. If we could play on this screen behind me what you thought about this past week, would you not be embarrassed by that? I would. 
But the fact of the matter is, when I came to that place at 16 and I surrendered my life to Christ, in that single moment, in that single moment of time, God forgave me of everything I'd ever done, everything I'd ever thought, everything that I was doing at that point in my life. God looked at me and said, I forgive you. I accept you. I adopt you. You are my son. You are no longer an alien. You're no longer an outsider. You are with me now. I am in your corner and nothing will ever part us. In that moment, folks, one moment, the shame went away. Now, there's been plenty of times since then I've been ashamed, but in that moment, it all went away. And not only, not only did Jesus forgive me of what I'd done in the past, get this, Jesus forgave me of everything I would ever do in the future. What he did on that cross was not only for my sins in the past and my sins of the present, but all the sins I'll ever commit. He became sin for me. So when John says that it's through the blood of the Lamb, what he's saying is, is that we've been forgiven, we are no longer condemned, and it does not matter what Satan says about me, it does not matter what Satan accuses me of, in the eyes of God, I am his son, his perfect son, his righteous son, not because of what I did, but because of what the perfect son, Jesus Christ, did on my behalf. You can't find a better deal than that anywhere in the world. If you're looking for forgiveness, if you're looking to outrun your past, you will never outrun it. But if you're looking to be forgiven of your past, if you're looking to be no longer be chained to your past, can I offer to you Jesus Christ the righteous who offers to you a brand new life? So when we look at what's happening here, he says that we have been, we will overcome, we will conquer by the blood of the Lamb and to get this, by the word of their testimony. What is that testimony, the gospel? So then when a person is born again, they go out and tell other people about the fact that they've been born again. The gospel is shared and it spreads and more people are set free from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. In just a few minutes, we're going to have a baptism right over here. Got a beautiful young lady who's put her faith in Jesus Christ. And when we get in this baptistry over here, you're going to see her laid back in this water, signifying that she has died to herself. And we're going to raise her up out of that water saying that she's been resurrected to new life. It says here that we will conquer by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. And to get this, for they love not their lives even unto death. That all down through Christian history, we have story after story after story after story of people who love Jesus more than their very life. When it came down to making a choice between dying or giving up on Christ, they chose death. And every time that happened, every time a person was destroyed because of their testimony in Jesus, every time a person was put to death because of their faith in Jesus, the one who puts them to death thinks that they've stopped the spread of, God, of the gospel. They think that they've put an end to it when in fact, it's done exactly the opposite. Everywhere we, everywhere we find people being persecuted for the faith, we find the faith growing astronomically. Let me ask you a question. What if you were no longer afraid of other people? What if you were no longer afraid of what other people thought of you? I mean, we say that often. Oh, I'm not afraid of anybody. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. But deep down, deep down, you're still living like a middle schooler. Deep down inside, you're still very much afraid of what other people think about you. You're very much afraid of what people think about your faith. When we read Revelation 12, not only do we find a, a Satan who is defeated over and over and over again, but we find 
the opportunity to conquer and to live out the life that God has called for you, but it's not to be lived in fear. It's not to be lived fearing what other people think. You see, here's, here's the problem. When you begin to fear what other people think, they become your idol. Other people then control you. When, when, when you refuse to speak about Jesus or your faith or your God, the gospel that changed you because of what someone else may think, at that very moment, that person, you are more afraid of them than you are of God. God becomes very small and that person becomes very big. The fear of people will control your life, but it'll also bring destruction into your life. And I'm asking you today to consider, as we look at Revelation 12, how all this is going to play out, that Christ the conqueror, Christ the king, that's where we find purpose and meaning for life. If you've got addictions, if your past is plaguing you, you don't have to look any further than Jesus Christ and putting your faith in him. Jump down to verse 13. It says, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. We, we know that, that 1260 days that was mentioned earlier, we're talking about the second part of the great tribulation time, three and a half years where Satan, when he comes back and falls to this planet where he has no longer has any access to God, what is he going to do? He's going to run after the very thing that God loves the most, his people. But that's not just going to happen at this point in the future, it's happening now. It's happening right now that, that Satan, although the text says that when he gets thrown back to earth for that final time, he knows that his time is short. I would argue that I believe that he knows his time is short now. Turn to Colossians. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. I'll show you why I believe that. Yes, when John is writing, looking at this future event, he knows Satan knows that his time is very short. He knows that Jesus is going to return. He knows that Jesus is going to to ultimately be the victor. But I think he knows that now because we're told that now. Look in Colossians. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. Pick it up in verse 13, chapter 2. Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, for those of you who were once lost, for those of you who were once dead in your sins, he says, God made alive together with him. So, we were dead. We put our faith in Jesus. He gives us brand new life. He says, and having forgiven us of all of our trespasses, that, that God in that moment forgives us, gives us of all the things that we've done wrong through what, his, through what his son, Jesus, did on the cross. We're forgiven. It's no longer held against us. But look at this. Verse 14, how is that done? By canceling the record of debt. By the sheer fact that we were born into this world as broken people, we are indebted to God. How? Because we're his enemies. You know, this whole concept that this whole concept that all of us are children of God. In the one sense, it's true that every single human being owes its existence to God. So in that respect, yes. But hear me very closely. When the Bible says children of God, when it defines children of God, it means those who've been adopted by God, and that can only occur through Jesus Christ, who said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So no, not everyone is a child of God. He says here that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, that word canceling means erased, 
Jesus erased that record of debt, and get this, with its legal demands. What were the legal demands? So we have the righteous law that says, if you break the law, you deserve to die. Jesus Christ comes and he says, I'm willing to die in their place, and I'm willing to take all of their punishment upon myself. That's what Jesus Christ did on that cross. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. So not only was the record of debt canceled, but it's legal demands. In other words, there was no more legal demand on your life. So when Satan accuses us, when Satan accuses us before God, in one sense, he's true. We all fail. We all fall short. But the reality is that I've been adopted by God, and there's not a thing. And I'm going to use some good old mountain language here. There ain't nothing that Satan can do about my relationship to Jesus Christ. I am in the palm of my Father's hand, and nothing, nothing, say nothing. nothing. Say nothing. nothing. Nothing means what? Nothing shall pluck us out of the hand of God. So while he may accuse, and by the way, he does this in my head sometimes. You ever have this problem? That voice in your head bringing up something in the past that you've already repented of? Man, I wish I hadn't done that. Man, I wish I, wish I hadn't made that choice. I wish I hadn't treated that person that way. And you sit down and you relive all of that. You sit down and there's this voice in your head that's taking you back to some past sin that he's already forgiven you of, and you're sitting there wrestling with it as though it just happened. Listen, when that voice is in your head, you got to know who that voice is. It's not the voice of your father, because your father says to you, Romans 8, 1, you are now no longer condemned. If there's a condemning voice in your head, can I, can I direct our attention to where that voice is coming from? It's coming from none other than this red dragon in his kingdom. You need to shut that down. So we see Satan cast out. Paul says in Colossians, and let me get the last part of this. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and here it is, this he set aside by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing them over them in him. So right there in Colossians, Paul says that what Jesus did on the cross by canceling our debt and setting us free, that, in that moment, disarmed the rulers put them to open shame, and ultimately defeated them. Satan knows that. That what Jesus accomplished on our behalf gives us victory over the kingdom of darkness. I was reading about some Russian military that when they went into um, Auschwitz, the concentration camp that the Germans had set up to destroy people that they had deemed unworthy, Polish people, Jewish people in particular. Auschwitz, um, it was a horrific place. And these Russian soldiers that first entered into Auschwitz to liberate that camp, it was a Russian army that was able to do that first. And they were one of the, some of the first people to go in to places like Ravenbrook, Birkenau, Auschwitz. And they wrote down everything that they saw. We have that record today. You can look it up on Google. It's right there in their words what they saw. I sat down and I read some of their accounts. I'm not going to repeat everything that they wrote. But when you read it, you can't help but wonder how in the world could humanity become so evil. One of the reasons I study that time of, of our history is because, not only because of the evil, but because that we could end up in a place like that again. That the heart of humanity has not been 
healed. There are people out there that would probably prefer that we be in a place like that again, to where lives are not worthy to be lived, and therefore they get to have the opportunity to destroy those lives. I read that, and I read what those soldiers wrote, and they, they said that when they came into Auschwitz and they begin to go into these bunkhouses, that it literally looked like skeletons with skin on. And one of the mistakes that they made, they began to give these people food. And they began eating and eating and making them very sick because it had been so long since they'd had anything to eat that they couldn't eat anything. And some of the people, when they stood up, literally fell and died right in front of them because they were too weak. For many of them, they couldn't even believe that, that freedom was even a possibility anymore. They'd given up on all possibility of freedom. And when we look at Birkenau, when we look at Ravenbrook, which was a, a place for women only, and we look at the atrocities, and we look at the evil, and we look at the killing and the murdering without any conscience whatsoever, folks, we have to come to the conclusion. The reality is, is that Satan is alive and well, and he's roaming this earth. But make no mistake about it, what God said to him in Genesis chapter 3, that his head will be crushed. His head was crushed. He was bruised when he tried to turn Saul against David. He was bruised when he came against Jesus in the wilderness. But when Jesus hung on a cross, and he tucked those nails, and he tucked that beating, and he he died and three days later he resurrected make no mistake about it on that day on that day Satan's head was crushed and he knows it and for all those who follow him you too can conquer so at this point I have to ask you the question how are you doing how are you doing when it comes to the temptations that so easily beset you how are you doing when Satan is Roaming about in your home, are you taking the initiative, parents, to make sure your kids are protected and safe? If Satan is real, and he is, and he's seeking to devour, and parents, we need to have our eyes open, and we need to understand the reality that he is seeking to destroy your family. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Father in heaven, we love you, and we thank you for your goodness and grace. As we worship together in these moments, as we celebrate baptism in a few moments, I pray, Father, that, that you would be exalted. That what we're going to see here in just a few minutes is that miraculous work that you did in my life, that you've done in the lives of many others. That in this baptistry, we're going to see that miracle lived out right in front of us. That a person that was once dead is now alive that a person that was once on the outside is now part of your family. And Father, that free gift is still available today to any who will put faith in you. Father, for those running from their past, for those, Lord, who are in darkness, for those who are broken by the decisions of their past, for those, Father, who feel like they'll never be able to break free from their addictions, for those, Lord, who believe that they've gone too far, I pray, Father, that they would hear today that the way, the path to victory is only through the blood of the Lamb, only through the good news of the gospel. And Father, for today, maybe today for the very first time, they would express faith in you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.